Capitalism and Schizophrenia by Jill Deleuze and Felix Gewateri. Preface by Michel Foucault During the years 1945 to 1965, I am referring to Europe, there was a certain way of thinking correctly, a certain style of political discourse, a certain ethics of the intellectual. One had to be on familiar terms with Marx, not let one's dreams stray too far from Freud. And one had to treat sign systems the signifier with the greatest respect. These were the three requirements that made the strange occupation of writing and speaking a measure of truth about oneself and one's time acceptable. Then came the five brief, impassioned, jubilant, enigmatic years. At the gates of our world, there was Vietnam, of course, and the first major blow to the powers that be. But here, inside our walls, what exactly was taking place? An amalgam of revolutionary and anti-repressive politics? A war fought on two fronts, against social exploitation and psychic repression? A surge of libido modulated by the class struggle? Perhaps. At any rate, it is this familiar, dualistic interpretation that has laid claim to the events of those years. The dream that cast its spell, between the First World War and fascism, over the dreamiest parts of Europe the Germany of Wilhelm Reich, and the France of the Surrealists had returned and set fire to reality itself, Marx and Freud in the same incandescent light. But is that really what happened? Had the utopian project of the 30s been resumed, this time on the scale of historical practice? Or was there, on the contrary, a movement toward political struggles that no longer conformed to the model that Marxist tradition had prescribed? Toward an experience and a technology of desire that were no longer Freudian? It is true that the old banners were raised, but the combat shifted and spread into new zones. This shift, shows first of all how much ground has been covered. But it does much more than that. It wastes no time in discrediting the old idols, even though it does have a great deal of fun with Freud. Most important, it motivates us to go further. It would be a mistake to read Anti-Oedipus as the new theoretical reference, you know, that much heralded theory that finally encompasses everything, that finally totalizes and reassures, the one we are told we need so badly in our age of dispersion and specialization where hope is lacking. One must not look for a philosophy amid the extraordinary profusion of new notions and surprise concepts, Anti-Oedipus is not a flashy Hegel. I think that Anti-Oedipus can best be read as an art, in the sense that is conveyed by the term erotic art, for example. Informed by the seemingly abstract notions of multiplicities, flows, arrangements, and connections, the analysis of the relationship of desire to reality and to the capitalist machine yields answers to concrete questions. Questions that are less concerned with why this or that than with how to proceed. How does one introduce desire into thought, into discourse, into action? How can and must desire deploy its forces within the political domain and grow more intense in the process of overturning the established order? Ars erotica, ars theoretica, ars politico. Whence the three adversaries confronted by Anti-Oedipus. Three adversaries who do not have the same strength, who represent varying degrees of danger, and whom the book combats in different ways. One the political ascetics, the sad militants, the terrorists of theory, 
those who would preserve the pure order of politics and political discourse. Bureaucrats of the revolution and civil servants of truth. To the poor technicians of desire psychoanalysts and semiologists of every sign and symptom who would subjugate the multiplicity of desire to the twofold law of structure and lack. Three last but not least, the major enemy, the strategic adversary is fascism, whereas anti-Oedipus opposition to the others is more of a tactical engagement. And not only historical fascism, the fascism of Hitler and Mussolini which was able to mobilize and use the desire of the masses so effectively but also the fascism in us all, in our heads and in our everyday behavior, the fascism that causes us to love power, to desire the very thing that dominates and exploits us. I would say that Anti-Oedipus, may its authors forgive me, is a book of ethics, the first book of ethics to be written in France in quite a long time, perhaps that explains why its success was not limited to a particular readership, being anti-edible has become a lifestyle, a way of thinking and living. How does one keep from being fascist, even, especially, when one believes oneself to be a revolutionary militant? How do we rid our speech and our acts, our hearts and our pleasures, of fascism? How do we ferret out the fascism that is ingrained in our behavior? The Christian moralists sought out the traces of the flesh lodged deep within the soul. Delos and Gewaitery, for their part, pursue the slightest traces of fascism in the body. Paying a modest tribute to St. Francis de Sales, one might say that anti-Oedipus is an introduction to the non-fascist life. This art of living counter to all forms of fascism, whether already present or impending, carries with it a certain number of essential principles which I would summarize as follows if I were to make this great book into a manual or guide to everyday life. Free political action from all unitary and totalizing paranoia. Develop action, thought, and desires by proliferation, juxtaposition, and disjunction, and not by subdivision and pyramidal hierarchization. Withdraw allegiance from the old categories of the negative, law, limit, castration, lack, lacuna, which Western thought has so long held sacred as a form of power and an access to reality. Prefer what is positive and multiple, difference over uniformity, flows over unities, mobile arrangements over systems. Believe that what is productive is not sedentary but nomadic. Do not think that one has to be sad in order to be militant, even though the thing one is fighting is abominable. It is the connection of desire to reality, and not its retreat into the forms of representation, that possesses revolutionary force. Do not use thought to ground a political practice in truth, nor political action to discredit, as mere speculation, a line of thought. Use political practice as an intensifier of thought, and analysis as a multiplier of the forms and domains for the intervention of political action. Do not demand of politics that it restore the rights of the individual, as philosophy has defined them. The individual is the product of power. What is needed is to de-individualize by means of multiplication and displacement, diverse combinations. The group must not be the organic bond uniting hierarchized individuals, but a constant generator of de-individualization. Do not become enamored of power. It could even be said that Delos and Gewaitery care so little for power that they have tried to neutralize the effects of power linked to their own discourse. Hence the games and snares scattered throughout the book, rendering its translation a feat of real prowess. 
but these are not the familiar traps of rhetoric, the latter work to sway the reader without his being aware of the manipulation, and ultimately win him over against his will. The traps of anti-Oedipus are those of humor, so many invitations to let oneself be put out, to take one's leave of the text and slam the door shut. The book often leads one to believe it is all fun and games, when something essential is taking place, something of extreme seriousness, the tracking down of all varieties of fascism, from the enormous ones that surround and crush us to the petty ones that constitute the tyrannical bitterness of our everyday lives. Introduction By Mark Seam We must die as egos and be born again in the swarm, not separate and self-hypnotized, but individual and related. Henry Miller, Sexus The Anti-Ego Lie down, then, on the soft couch which the analyst provides, and try to think up something different. The analyst has endless time and patience, every minute you detain him means money in his pocket. Whether you whine, howl, beg, weep, cajole, pray or curse he listens. He is just a big ear minus a sympathetic nervous system. He is impervious to everything but truth. If you think it pays to fool him then fool him. Who will be the loser? If you think he can help you, and not yourself, then stick to him until you rot one. So concludes Henry Miller in Sexus, and Jill Delos and Felix Gewateri are quick to agree in their attack on psychoanalysis' own Oedipus complex, the holy family, daddy mommy me, an attack that is at times brutal and without pity, at other times sympathetic and full of a profound love of life, and often enormously amusing. An attack on the ego, on what is all too human in mankind, on Oedipalized and Oedipalizing analyses and neurotic modes of living. In confronting and finally overturning the Oedipal rock on which man has chosen to take his stand, Anti-Oedipus comes as a kind of sequel to another similar venture, the attack on Christ, Christianity, and the herd in Nietzsche's The Antichrist. For who would deny, Anti-Oedipus begins, that psychoanalysis was from the start, still is, and perhaps always will be a well-constituted church and a form of treatment based on a set of beliefs that only the very faithful could adhere to, i.e., those who believe in a security that amounts to being lost in the herd and defined in terms of common and external goals. But where do such beliefs originate? What are they based on? For it is absolutely hopeless to think in terms of security, as Miller states in Sexus, there is none. The man who looks for security, even in the mind, is like a man who would chop off his limbs in order to have artificial ones which will give him no pain or trouble, page 428. No pain, no trouble this is the neurotic dream of a tranquilized and conflict-free existence. Such a set of beliefs, Delos and Gawateri demonstrate, such a herd instinct, is based on the desire to be led, the desire to have someone else legislate life. The very desire that was brought so glaringly into focus in Europe with Hitler, Mussolini, and fascism, the desire that is still at work, making us all sick, today. Anti-Oedipus starts by reviving Reich's completely serious question with respect to the rise of fascism, how could the masses be made to desire their own repression? This is a question which the English and Americans are reluctant to deal with directly, tending too often to respond, Fascism is a phenomenon that took place elsewhere, something that could only happen to others, but not to us, it's their problem. 
Is it though? Is fascism really a problem for others to deal with? Even revolutionary groups deal gingerly with the fascicizing elements we all carry deep within us, and yet they often possess a rarely analyzed but overriding group superego that leads them to state, much like Nietzsche's man of ressentiment, that the other is evil, the fascist, the capitalist, the communist, and hence that they themselves are good. This conclusion is reached as an afterthought and a justification, a supremely self-righteous rationalization for a politics that can only squint at life, through the thick clouds of foul-smelling air that permeates secret meeting places and security councils. The man of ressentiment, as Nietzsche explains, loves hiding places, secret paths and back doors, everything covered entices him as his world, his security, his refreshment, he understands how to keep silent, how not to forget, how to wait, how to be provisionally self-deprecating and humble too. Such a man, Nietzsche concludes, needs very much to believe in some neutral, independent subject the ego for he is prompted by an instinct of self-affirmation and self-preservation that cares little about preserving or affirming life, an instinct in which every lie is sanctified. 3. This is the realm of the silent majority. And it is into these back rooms, behind the closed doors of the analyst's office, in the wings of the Oedipal Theatre, that Deleuze and Gawateri weave their way, exclaiming as does Nietzsche that it smells bad there, and that what is needed is a breath of fresh air, a relationship with the outside world. In examining the problem of the subject, the behind-the-scenes reactive and reactionary man, anti-Oedipus develops an approach that is decidedly diagnostic, what constitutes our sickness today. And profoundly healing as well. What it attempts to cure us of is the cure itself. Delos and Gawateri term their approach schizoanalysis, which they oppose on every count to psychoanalysis. Where the latter measures everything against neurosis and castration, schizoanalysis begins with the schizo, his breakdowns, and his breakthroughs. For, they affirm, a schizophrenic out for a walk is a better model than a neurotic lying on the analyst's couch. Against the Oedipal and Oedipalized territorialities, family, church, school, nation, party, and especially the territoriality of the individual, Anti-Oedipus seeks to discover the deterritorialized flows of desire, the flows that have not been reduced to the Oedipal codes and the neuroticized territorialities, the desiring machines that escape such codes as lines of escape leading elsewhere. Much like R.D. Lang, Deleuze, and Gawateri aim to develop a materialistically and experientially based analysis of the breakdowns and the breakthroughs that characterize some of those labeled schizophrenic by psychiatry. Rather than view the creations and productions of desire all of desiring production from the point of view of the norm and the normal, they force their analysis into the sphere of extremes. From paranoia to schizophrenia, from fascism to revolution, from breakdowns to breakthroughs, what is investigated is the process of life flows as they oscillate from one extreme to the other, on a scale of intensity that goes from zero, I never ask to be born leave me in peace, the body without organs, to the nth power, I am all that exists, all the names in history, the schizophrenic process of desire. The experience of delirium. In order to carry out this ambitious undertaking, Anti-Oedipus makes joyously unorthodox use of many writers and thinkers, whose concepts flow together with all the other elements in the book in what might well be described as a carefully constructed and executed experiment in delirium. 
While Deleuze and Guattari quote frequently from Marx and Freud, it would be an error to view Anti-Oedipus as yet another attempt at a Freud-slash-Marx synthesis. For such an attempt always treats political economy, the flows of capital and interest, and the economy of the libido, the flows of desire, as two separate economies, even in the work of Reich, who went as far as possible in this direction. Deleuze and Guattari, on the other hand, postulate one and the same economy, the economy of flows. The flows and productions of desire will simply be viewed as the unconscious of the social productions. Behind every investment of time and interest and capital, an investment of desire, and vice versa. In order to reach this conclusion a new confrontation was required. Not the standard confrontation between a bourgeois Freud and a revolutionary Marx, where Freud ends up the loser, but a more radical confrontation, between Marx the revolutionary and Nietzsche the madman. The result of this confrontation, as the authors demonstrate convincingly, is that Freud and psychoanalysis, and perhaps even Lacan, although they remain ambiguous on this point, become impossible. Why Marx and Nietzsche? Now that's really mixing things up. One might protest at this point. But there is really no cause for alarm. Readers of Marx will be happy to learn that Marx fares quite well in this confrontation. One might even say he is trimmed down to bare essentials and improved upon from the point of view of use. Given Deleuze and Guattari's perspective, this confrontation was inevitable. If one wants to do an analysis of the flows of money and capital that circulate in society, nothing is more useful than Marx and the Marxist theory of money. But if one wishes also to analyze the flows of desire, the fears and the anxieties, the loves and the despairs that traverse the social field as intensive notes from the underground, i.e., libidinal economy, one must look elsewhere. Since psychoanalysis is of no help, reducing as it does every social manifestation of desire to the familial complex, where is one to turn? To Nietzsche, and the Nietzschean theory of affects and intensity, Anti-Oedipus suggests. For here, and especially in On the Genealogy of Morals, is a theory of desire and will, of the conscious and the unconscious forces, that relates desire directly to the social field and to a monetary system based on profit. What Nietzsche teaches, as a complement to Marx's theory of alienation, is how the history of mankind is the history of a becoming reactive. And it is Nietzsche, Deleuze, and Guattari stress, whose thought already pointed a way out for humanity, whereas Marx and Freud were too ingrained in the culture that they were working against. One could not really view Anti-Oedipus as a purely Nietzschean undertaking, however, for the book would be nothing without the tension between Nietzsche and Marx, between philosophy and politics between thought and revolution, the tension, in short, between Deleuze the philosopher and Guattari the militant. This tension is quite novel, and leads to a combination of the artistic machine, the revolutionary machine, and the analytical machine, a combination of three modes of knowledge the intuitive, the practical, and the reflective, which all become joined as bits and pieces of one and the same strategical machine whose target is the ego and the fascist in each of us. Extending thought to the point of madness and action to the point of revolution, theirs is indeed a politics of experience. The experience, however, is no longer that of man, but of what is non-human in man, his desires, and his forces, 
a politics of desire directed against all that is egoi and heroic in men. In addition to Nietzsche they also found it necessary to listen to others, to Miller and Lawrence and Kafka and Beckett, to Proust and Reich and Foucault, to Burroughs and Ginsberg, each of whom had different insights concerning madness and dissension, politics and desire. They needed everything they could get their hands on and they took whatever they could find, in an eclectic fashion closer to Henry Miller than it is to Marx or Freud. More poetic, undoubtedly, but also more fun. While Deleuze and Guattari use many authors and concepts, this is never done in an academic fashion aimed at persuading the reader. Rather, they use these names and ideas as effects that traverse their analyses, generating ever new effects, as points of reference indeed, but also as points of intensity and signs pointing a way out, points signs that offer a multiplicity of solutions and a variety of directions for a new style of politics. Such an approach carries much along with it, in the course of its flow, but it also leaves much behind. Chunks of Marx and Freud that cannot keep up with the fast current will be left behind, buried or forgotten, while everything in Marx and Freud that has to do with how things and people and desires actually flow will be kept, and added to the infernal machine evoked above. This political analysis of desire, this schizoanalysis, becomes a mighty tool where schizophrenia as a process the ski serves as a point of departure as well as a point of destination. Like Lang, they encourage mankind to take a journey, the journey through ego loss. They go much further than Lang on this point, however. They urge mankind to strip itself of all anthropomorphic and anthropological armoring, all myth and tragedy, and all existentialism, in order to perceive what is non-human in man, his will and his forces, his transformations and mutations. The human and social sciences have accustomed us to see the figure of man behind every social event, just as Christianity taught us to see the eye of the Lord looking down upon us. Such forms of knowledge project an image of reality, at the expense of reality itself. They talk figures and icons and signs, but fail to perceive forces and flows. They blind us to other realities, and especially the reality of power as it subjugates us. Their function is to tame, and the result is the fabrication of docile and obedient subjects. Schizoanalysis and Collectivity To be anti-edipal is to be anti-ego as well as anti-homo, willfully attacking all reductive psychoanalytic and political analyses that remain caught within the sphere of totality and unity, in order to free the multiplicity of desire from the deadly neurotic and edipal yoke. For Oedipus is not a mere psychoanalytic construct, Deleuze and Guattari explain. Oedipus is the figurehead of imperialism, colonization pursued by other means, it is the interior colony, and we shall see that even here at home, it is our intimate colonial education. This internalization of man by man, this Oedipalization, creates a new meaning for suffering, internal suffering, and a new tone for life, the depressive tone. Now depression does not just come about one fine day, anti-Oedipus goes on, nor does Oedipus appear one day in the family and feel secure in remaining there. Depression and Oedipus are agencies of the state, agencies of paranoia, agencies of power, long before being delegated to the family. Oedipus is the figure of power as such, just as neurosis is the result of power on individuals. Oedipus is everywhere. For anti-Oedipalists the ego, like Oedipus, 
is part of those things we must dismantle through the united assault of analytical and political forces for. Oedipus is belief injected into the unconscious, it is what gives us faith as it robs us of power, it is what teaches us to desire our own repression. Everybody has been Oedipalized and neuroticized at home, at school, at work. Everybody wants to be a fascist. Deleuze and Guattari want to know how these beliefs succeed in taking hold of a body, thereby silencing the productive machines of the libido. They also want to know how the opposite situation is brought about, where a body successfully wards off the effects of power. Reversing the Freudian distinction between neurosis and psychosis that measures everything against the former, Anti-Oedipus concludes, the neurotic is the one on whom the Oedipal imprints take, whereas the psychotic is the one incapable of being Oedipalized, even and especially by psychoanalysis. The first task of the revolutionary, they add, is to learn from the psychotic how to shake off the Oedipal yoke and the effects of power, in order to initiate a radical politics of desire freed from all beliefs. Such a politics dissolves the mystifications of power through the kindling, on all levels, of anti-Oedipal forces the schizes flows forces that escape coding, scramble the codes, and flee in all directions, orphans, no daddy mommy me, atheists, no beliefs, and nomads, no habits, no territories. A schizoanalysis schizophrenizes in order to break the holds of power and institute research into a new collective subjectivity and a revolutionary healing of mankind. For we are sick, so sick, of ourselves. It is actually not accurate to say that Delos and Gawateri developed the schizoanalytic approach, for, as they show, it has always been at work in writers like Miller or Nietzsche or Artaud. Stone thinking based on intensely lived experiences, pop philosophy. To put it simply, as does Miller, everybody becomes a healer the moment he forgets about himself. And Miller continues, reality is here and now, everywhere gleaming through every reflection that meets the eye. Everybody is a neurotic, down to the last man and woman. The healer, or the analyst, if you like, is only a super neurotic. To be cured we must rise from our graves and throw off the serments of the dead. Nobody can do it for another it is a private affair which is best done collectively 5. Once we forget about our egos a non-neurotic form of politics becomes possible, where singularity and collectivity are no longer at odds with each other, and where collective expressions of desire are possible. Such a politics does not seek to regiment individuals according to a totalitarian system of norms, but to denormalize and de-individualize through a multiplicity of new, collective arrangements against power. Its goal is the transformation of human relationships in a struggle against power. And it urges militant groups, as well as lone individuals, to analyze and fight against the effects of power that subjugate them, for a revolutionary group at the preconscious level remains a subjugated group, even in seizing power, as long as this power itself refers to a form of force that continues to enslave and crush desiring production. A subject group, on the contrary, is a group whose libidinal investments are themselves revolutionary, it causes desire to penetrate into the social field, and subordinates the socius or the forms of power to desiring production, productive of desire and a desire that produces, the subject group always invents mortal formations that exorcise the effusion in it of a death instinct, 
it opposes real coefficients of transversally to the symbolic determinations of subjugation, coefficients without a hierarchy or a group superego. There can be no revolutionary actions, Anti-Oedipus concludes, where the, the relations between people and groups are relations of exclusion and segregation. Groups must multiply and connect in ever new ways, freeing up territorialities for the construction of new social arrangements. Theory must therefore be conceived as a toolbox, producing tools that work, or as Ivan Illich says, we must learn to construct tools for conviviality through the use of counterfoil research. Point six. When Illich speaks of convivial reconstruction, he is very close to Deleuze and Guattari's notion of a desiring revolution. Like Deleuze and Guattari, Illich also calls for a radical reversal of the relationships between individuals and tools or machines, this reversal would permit the evolution of a lifestyle and of a political system which give priority to the protection, the maximum use, and the enjoyment of the one resource that is almost equally distributed among all people, personal energy under personal control 7. All three authors agree that such a reversal must be governed by a collective political process, and not by professionals and experts. The ultimate answer to neurotic dependencies on professionals is mutual self-care. Freed from a psychoanalytic framework, the political group or collective cannot, however, push aside the problem of desire. Nor can it leave desire in the hands of new experts. It must analyze the function of desire, in itself and in the groups with which it is involved. What is the function of desire, Antioedipus asks, if not one of making connections? For to be bogged down in arrangements from which escape is possible is to be neurotic, seeing an irresolvable crisis where alternatives in fact exist. And as Delos and Guattari comment, perhaps it will be discovered that the only incurable is the neurotic. We defend so cautiously against our egoically limited experiences, states Lang in the politics of experience, that it is not surprising to see people grow defensive and panic at the idea of experiencing ego loss through the use of drugs or collective experiences. But there is nothing pathological about ego loss, Lang adds, quite the contrary. Ego loss is the experience of all mankind, of the primal man, of Adam, and perhaps even a journey further into the beings of animals, vegetables and minerals 9. No age, Lang concludes, has so lost touch with this healing process as has ours. Delos and Guattari's schizoanalytic approach serves to begin such a healing process. Its major task is to destroy the Oedipalized and neuroticized individual dependencies through the forging of a collective subjectivity, a non-fascist subject anti-Oedipus. Anti-Oedipus is an individual or a group that no longer functions in terms of beliefs and that comes to redeem mankind, as Nietzsche foresaw, not only from the ideals that weighed it down, but also from that which was bound to grow out of it, the great nausea, the will to nothingness, nihilism, this bell stroke of noon and of the great decision that liberates the will again and restores its goal to the earth and his hope to man, this antichrist and antinihilist. He must come one day ten. Unlike Nietzsche's antinihilist, however, Delos and Guattari's anti-Oedipus is not alone. Anti-Oedipus is not the superman, it is not transcendent. Where Nietzsche grew progressively more isolated to the point of madness, Delos and Guattari call for actions and passions of a collective nature, here and now. Madness is a radical break from power in the form of a disconnection. 
militancy, in Deleuze and Guattari's framework, would learn from madness but then move beyond it, beyond disconnect ions and deterritorializations, to ever new connections. A politics of desire would see loneliness and depression as the first things to go. Such is the anti-Oedipal strategy, if man is connected to the machines of the universe, if he is in tune with his desires, if he is anchored, he ceases to worry about the fitness of things, about the behavior of his fellow men, about right or wrong and justice and injustice. If his roots are in the current of life he will float on the surface like a lotus and he will blossom and give forth fruit. The life that's in him will manifest itself in growth, and growth is an endless, eternal process. The process is everything eleven. It is this process of desiring production that Anti-Oedipus sets out to analyze. For if desire is repressed in a society, Deleuze and Guattari state, this is hardly because it is a desire for the mother or for the death of the father, on the contrary, desire becomes that only because it is repressed, it takes that mask on under the reign of the repression that models the mask for it and plasters it on its face. The real danger is elsewhere. If desire is repressed, it is because every position of desire, no matter how small, is capable of calling into question the established order of a society, not that desire is a social, on the contrary. But it is explosive, there is no desiring machine capable of being assembled without demolishing entire social sectors. Deleuze and Guattari conclude that desire, any desiring machine, is always a combination of various elements and forces of all types. Hence the need to listen not only to revolutionaries but to all those who know how to be truly objective, revolutionaries, artists, and seers and content to be objective, merely objective, they know that desire clasps life in its powerfully productive embrace, and reproduces it in a way all the more intense because it has few needs. And never mind those who believe that this is very easy to say, or that it is the sort of idea to be found in books. Anti-Oedipus the Desiring Machines. Translated by Helen R. Lane, Robert Hurley, and Mark Seam. One Desiring Production. It is at work everywhere, functioning smoothly at times, at other times in fits and starts. It breathes, it heats, it eats. It shits and fucks. What a mistake to have ever said the ID. Everywhere it is machines real ones, not figurative ones, machines driving other machines, machines being driven by other machines, with all the necessary couplings and connections. An organ machine is plugged into an energy source machine, the one produces a flow that the other interrupts. The breast is a machine that produces milk, and the mouth eye machine coupled to it. The mouth of the anorexic wavers between several functions, its possessor is uncertain as to whether it is an eating machine, an anal machine, a talking machine, or a breathing machine, asthma attacks. Hence we are all handy men, each with his little machines. For every organ machine, an energy machine, all the time, flows and interruptions. Judge Schreiber has sunbeams in his ass. A solar anus. And rest assured that it works, Judge Schreiber feels something, produces something, and is capable of explaining the process theoretically. Something is produced, the effects of a machine, not mere metaphors. A schizophrenic out for a walk is a better model than a neurotic lying on the analyst's couch. A breath of fresh air, a relationship with the outside world. 
lens stroll, for example, as reconstructed by Buchner. This walk outdoors is different from the moments when Lenz finds himself closeted with his pastor, who forces him to situate himself socially, in relationship to the god of established religion, in relationship to his father, to his mother. While taking a stroll outdoors, on the other hand, he is in the mountains, amid falling snowflakes, with other gods or without any gods at all, without a family, without a father or a mother, with nature. What does my father want? Can he offer me more than that? Impossible. Leave me in peace one. Everything is a machine. Celestial machines, the stars, or rainbows in the sky, alpine machines all of them connected to those of his body. The continual whir of machines. He thought that it must be a feeling of endless bliss to be in contact with the profound life of every form, to have a soul for rocks, metals, water, and plants, to take into himself, as in a dream, every element of nature, like flowers that breathe with the waxing and waning of the moon law. To be a chlorophyll or a photosynthesis machine, or at least slip his body into such machines as one part among the others. Lenz has projected himself back to a time before the man-nature dichotomy, before all the coordinates based on this fundamental dichotomy have been laid down. He does not live nature as nature, but as a process of production. There is no such thing as either man or nature now, only a process that produces the one within the other and couples the machines together. Producing machines, desiring machines everywhere, schizophrenic machines, all of species life, the self and the non-self, outside and inside, no longer have any meaning whatsoever. Now that we have had a look at this stroll of a schizo, let us compare what happens when Samuel Beckett's characters decide to venture outdoors. Their various gates and methods of self-locomotion constitute, in and of themselves, a finely tuned machine. And then there is the function of the bicycle in Beckett's works, what relationship does the bicycle horn machine have with the mother anus machine? What a rest to speak of bicycles and horns. Unfortunately it is not of them I have to speak, but of her who brought me into the world, through the hole in her arse if my memory is correct too. It is often thought that Oedipus is an easy subject to deal with, something perfectly obvious, a given that is there from the very beginning. But that is not so at all, Oedipus presupposes a fantastic repression of desiring machines. And why are they repressed? To what end? Is it really necessary or desirable to submit to such repression? And what means are to be used to accomplish this? What ought to go inside the Oedipal triangle, what sort of thing is required to construct it? Are a bicycle horn and my mother's are sufficient to do the job? Aren't there more important questions than these, however? Given a certain effect, what machine is capable of producing it? And given a certain machine, what can it be used for? Can we possibly guess, for instance, what a knife rest is used for if all we are given is a geometrical description of it? Or yet another example, on being confronted with a complete machine made up of six stones in the right-hand pocket of my coat, the pocket that serves as the source of the stones, five stones in the right-hand pocket of my trousers, and five in the left-hand pocket, transmission pockets, with the remaining pocket of my coat receiving the stones that have already been handled, as each of the stones moves forward one pocket, 
how can we determine the effect of the circuit of distribution in which the mouth, too, plays a role as a stone-sucking machine? Where in this entire circuit do we find the production of sexual pleasure? At the end of Malone dies, Lady Petal takes the schizophrenics out for a ride in a van and a rowboat, and on a picnic in the midst of nature, an infernal machine is being assembled. Under the skin the body is an overheated factory slash and outside slash the invalid shine slash glow slash from every burst pour three. This does not mean that we are attempting to make nature one of the poles of schizophrenia. What the schizophrenic experiences, both as an individual and as a member of the human species, is not at all any one specific aspect of nature, but nature as a process of production. What do we mean here by process? It is probable that at a certain level nature and industry are two separate and distinct things, from one point of view, industry is the opposite of nature, from another, industry extracts its raw materials from nature, from yet another, it returns its refuse to nature, and so on. Even within society, this characteristic man-nature, industry-nature, society-nature relationship is responsible for the distinction of relatively autonomous spheres that are called production, distribution, consumption. But in general this entire level of distinctions, examined from the point of view of its formal developed structures, presupposes, as Marx has demonstrated, not only the existence of capital and the division of labor, but also the false consciousness that the capitalist being necessarily acquires, both of itself and of the supposedly fixed elements within an overall process. For the real truth of the matter the glaring, sober truth that resides in delirium is that there is no such thing as relatively independent spheres or circuits, production is immediately consumption and a recording process, and registrament, without any sort of mediation, and the recording process and consumption directly determine production, though they do so within the production process itself. Hence everything is production, production of productions, of actions, and of passions, productions of recording processes, of distributions, and of coordinates that serve as points of reference, productions of consumptions, of sensual pleasures, of anxieties, and of pain. Everything is production, since the recording processes are immediately consumed, immediately consummated, and these consumptions directly reproduced plus this is the first meaning of process as we use the term, incorporating recording and consumption within production itself, thus making them the productions of one and the same process. Second, we make no distinction between man and nature, the human essence of nature and the natural essence of man become one within nature in the form of production or industry, just as they do within the life of man as a species. Industry is then no longer considered from the extrinsic point of view of utility, but rather from the point of view of its fundamental identity with nature as production of man and by man.4 not man as the king of creation, but rather as the being who is in intimate contact with the profound life of all forms or all types of beings, who is responsible for even the stars and animal life, and who ceaselessly plugs an organ machine into an energy machine, a tree into his body, a breast into his mouth, the sun into his asshole, the eternal custodian of the machines of the universe. This is the second meaning of process as we use the term, man and nature are not like two opposite terms confronting each other not even in the sense of bipolar opposites within a relationship of causation, ideation, or expression, cause and effect, subject and object, 
etc., rather, they are one and the same essential reality, the producer product. Production as process overtakes all idealistic categories and constitutes a cycle whose relationship to desire is that of an immanent principle. That is why desiring production is the principal concern of a materialist psychiatry, which conceives of and deals with the schizo as homo natura. This will be the case, however, only on one condition, which in fact constitutes the third meaning of process as we use the term, it must not be viewed as a goal or an end in itself, nor must it be confused with an infinite perpetuation of itself. Putting an end to the process or prolonging it indefinitely which, strictly speaking, is tantamount to ending it abruptly and prematurely is what creates the artificial schizophrenic found in mental institutions, a limp rag forced into autistic behavior, produced as an entirely separate and independent entity. D. H. Lawrence says of love, we have pushed a process into a goal. The aim of any process is not the perpetuation of that process, but the completion thereof. The process should work to a completion, not to some horror of intensification and extremity wherein the soul and body ultimately perish. 5. Schizophrenia is like love, there is no specifically schizophrenic phenomenon or entity, schizophrenia is the universe of productive and reproductive desiring machines, universal primary production as the essential reality of man and nature. Desiring machines are binary machines, obeying a binary law or set of rules governing associations, one machine is always coupled with another. The productive synthesis, the production of production, is inherently connective in nature, and and then. This is because there is always a flow-producing machine, and another machine connected to it that interrupts or draws off part of this flow, the breast the mouth. And because the first machine is in turn connected to another whose flow it interrupts or partially drains off, the binary series is linear in every direction. Desire constantly couples continuous flows and partial objects that are by nature fragmentary and fragmented. Desire causes the current to flow, itself flows in turn, and breaks the flows. I love everything that flows, even the menstrual flow that carries away the seed unfecund. Amniotic fluid spilling out of the sac and kidney stones, flowing hair, a flow of spittle, a flow of sperm, shit, zero one urine that are produced by partial objects and constantly cut off by other partial objects, which in turn produce other flows, interrupted by other partial objects. Every object presupposes the continuity of a flow, every flow, the fragmentation of the object. Doubtless each organ machine interprets the entire world from the perspective of its own flux, from the point of view of the energy that flows from it, the eye interprets everything speaking, understanding, shitting, fucking in terms of seeing. But a connection with another machine is always established, along a transverse path, so that one machine interrupts the current of the other or sees its own current interrupted. Hence the coupling that takes place within the partial object flow connective synthesis also has another form, product slash producing. Producing is always something grafted onto the product, and for that reason desiring production is production of production, just as every machine is a machine connected to another machine. We cannot accept the idealist category of expression as a satisfactory or sufficient explanation of this phenomenon. We cannot, we must not attempt to describe the schizophrenic object without relating it to the process of production. 
the Kayas de l'Art Brut are a striking confirmation of this principle, since by taking such an approach they deny that there is any such thing as a specific, identifiable schizophrenic entity. Or to take another example, Henry Michaud describes a schizophrenic table in terms of a process of production which is that of desire, once noticed, it continued to occupy one's mind. It even persisted, as it were, in going about its own business. The striking thing was that it was neither simple nor really complex, initially or intentionally complex, or constructed according to a complicated plan. Instead, it had been disimplified in the course of its carpentering. As it stood, it was a table of additions, much like certain schizophrenics drawings, described as overstuffed, and if finished it was only in so far as there was no way of adding anything more to it, the table having become more and more an accumulation, less and less a table. It was not intended for any specific purpose, for anything one expects of a table. Heavy, cumbersome, it was virtually immovable. One didn't know how to handle it, mentally or physically. Its top surface, the useful part of the table, having been gradually reduced, was disappearing, with so little relation to the clumsy framework that the thing did not strike one as a table, but as some freak piece of furniture, an unfamiliar instrument, for which there was no purpose. A dehumanized table, nothing cozy about it, nothing middle class, nothing rustic, nothing countrified, not a kitchen table or a work table. A table which lent itself to no function, self-protective, denying itself to service and communication alike. There was something stunned about it, something petrified. Perhaps it suggested a stalled engine 6. The schizophrenic is the universal producer. There is no need to distinguish here between producing and its product. We need merely note that the pure thisness of the object produced is carried over into a new act of producing. The table continues to go about its business. The surface of the table, however, is eaten up by the supporting framework. The non-termination of the table is a necessary consequence of its mode of production. When Claude Levi-Strauss defines bricolage he does so in terms of a set of closely related characteristics, the possession of a stock of materials or of rules of thumb that are fairly extensive, though more or less a hodgepodge multiple and at the same time limited, the ability to rearrange fragments continually in new and different patterns or configurations, and as a consequence, an indifference toward the act of producing and toward the product, toward the set of instruments to be used and toward the overall result to be achieved plus the satisfaction the handyman experiences when he plugs something into an electric socket or diverts a stream of water can scarcely be explained in terms of playing mommy and daddy, or by the pleasure of violating a taboo. The rule of continually producing production, of grafting producing onto the product, is a characteristic of desiring machines or of primary production, the production of production. A painting by Richard Lindner, Boy with Machine, shows a huge, pudgy, bloated boy working one of his little desiring machines, after having hooked it up to a vast technical social machine which, as we shall see, is what even the very young child does. Producing, a product, a producing slash product identity. It is this identity that constitutes a third term in the linear series, an enormous undifferentiated object. Everything stops dead for a moment, 
everything freezes in place and then the whole process will begin all over again. From a certain point of view it would be much better if nothing worked, if nothing functioned. Never being born, escaping the will of continual birth and rebirth, no mouth to suck with, no anus to shit through. Will the machines run so badly, their component pieces fall apart to such a point that they will return to nothingness and thus allow us to return to nothingness. It would seem, however, that the flows of energy are still too closely connected, the partial objects still too organic, for this to happen. What would be required is a pure fluid in a free state, flowing without interruption, streaming over the surface of a full body. Desiring machines make us an organism, but at the very heart of this production, within the very production of this production, the body suffers from being organized in this way, from not having some other sort of organization, or no organization at all. An incomprehensible, absolutely rigid stasis in the very midst of process, as a third stage, no mouth. No tongue. No teeth. No larynx. No esophagus. No belly. No anus. The automata stop dead and set free the unorganized mass they once served to articulate. The full body without organs is the unproductive, the sterile, the unengendered, the unconsumable. Antonin Artaud discovered this one day, finding himself with no shape or form whatsoever, right there where he was at that moment. The death instinct, that is its name, and death is not without a model. For desire desires death also, because the full body of death is its motor, just as it desires life, because the organs of life are the working machine. We shall not inquire how all this fits together so that the machine will run, the question itself is the result of a process of abstraction. Desiring machines work only when they break down, and by continually breaking down. Judge Schreber lived for a long time without a stomach, without intestines, almost without lungs, with a torn esophagus, without a bladder, and with shattered ribs, he used sometimes to swallow part of his own larynx with his food, etc. 7. The body without organs is non-productive, nonetheless it is produced, at a certain place and a certain time in the connective synthesis, as the identity of producing and the product, the schizophrenic table is a body without organs. The body without organs is not the proof of an original nothingness, nor is it what remains of a lost totality. Above all, it is not a projection, it has nothing whatsoever to do with the body itself, or with an image of the body. It is the body without an image. This imageless, organless body, the non-productive, exists right there where it is produced, in the third stage of the binary linear series. It is perpetually reinserted into the process of production. The catatonic body is produced in the water of the hydrotherapy tub. The full body without organs belongs to the realm of anti-production, but yet another characteristic of the connective or productive synthesis is the fact that it couples production with anti-production, with an element of anti-production. To the body without organs. An apparent conflict arises between desiring machines and the body without organs. Every coupling of machines, every production of a machine, every sound of a machine running, becomes unbearable to the body without organs. Beneath its organs it senses there are larvae and loathsome worms, and a god at work messing it all up or strangling it by organizing it. 
The body is the body slash it is all by itself slash and has no need of organs slash the body is never an organism slash organisms are the enemies of the body. Merely so many nails piercing the flesh, so many forms of torture. In order to resist organ machines, the body without organs presents its smooth, slippery, opaque, taut surface as a barrier. In order to resist linked, connected, and interrupted flows, it sets up a counterflow of amorphous, undifferentiated fluid. In order to resist using words composed of articulated phonetic units, it utters only gasps and cries that are sheer unarticulated blocks of sound. We are of the opinion that what is ordinarily referred to as primary repression means precisely that, it is not a counter-cathexis, but rather this repulsion of desiring machines by the body without organs. This is the real meaning of the paranoiac machine, the desiring machines attempt to break into the body without organs, and the body without organs repels them, since it experiences them as an overall persecution apparatus. Thus we cannot agree with Victor Tosk when he regards the paranoiac machine as a mere projection of a person's own body and the genital organs. Point eight. The genesis of the machine lies precisely here, in the opposition of the process of production of the desiring machines and the non-productive stasis of the body without organs. The anonymous nature of the machine and the non-differentiated nature of its surface are proof of this. Projection enters the picture only secondarily, as does counter-investment plus, as the body without organs invests a counter-inside or a counter-outside, in the form of a persecuting organ or some exterior agent of persecution. But in and of itself the paranoiac machine is merely an avatar of the desiring machines, it is a result of the relationship between the desiring machines and the body without organs, and occurs when the latter can no longer tolerate these machines. If we wish to have some idea of the forces that the body without organs exerts later on in the uninterrupted process, we must first establish a parallel between desiring production and social production. We intend such a parallel to be regarded as merely phenomenological, we are here drawing no conclusions whatsoever as to the nature and the relationship of the two productions, nor does the parallel we are about to establish provide any sort of a priori answer to the question whether desiring production and social production are really two separate and distinct productions. Its one purpose is to point out the fact that the forms of social production, like those of desiring production, involve an unengendered non-productive attitude, an element of anti-production coupled with the process, a full body that functions as a socius. This socius may be the body of the earth, that of the tyrant, or capital. This is the body that Marx is referring to when he says that it is not the product of labor, but rather appears as its natural or divine presupposition. In fact, it does not restrict itself merely to opposing productive forces in and of themselves. It falls back on, ILSE Rabatsur, all production, constituting a surface over which the forces and agents of production are distributed, thereby appropriating for itself all surplus production and arrogating to itself both the whole and the parts of the process, which now seem to emanate from it as a quasi-cause. Forces and agents come to represent a miraculous form of its own power, they appear to be miraculated, miracles, by it. In a word, the socius as a full body forms a surface where all production is recorded, whereupon the entire process appears to emanate from this recording surface. Society constructs its own delirium by recording the process of production, but it is not a conscious delirium, 
or rather is a true consciousness of a false movement, a true perception of an apparent objective movement, a true perception of the movement that is produced on the recording surface. Capital is indeed the body without organs of the capitalist, or rather of the capitalist being. But as such, it is not only the fluid and petrified substance of money, for it will give to the sterility of money the form whereby money produces money. It produces surplus value, just as the body without organs reproduces itself, puts forth shoots, and branches out to the farthest corners of the universe. It makes the machine responsible for producing a relative surplus value, while embodying itself in the machine as fixed capital. Machines and agents cling so closely to capital that their very functioning appears to be miraculated by it. Everything seems objectively to be produced by capital as quasi-cause. As Marx observes, in the beginning capitalists are necessarily conscious of the opposition between capital and labor, and of the use of capital as a means of extorting surplus labor. But a perverted, bewitched world quickly comes into being, as capital increasingly plays the role of a recording surface that falls back on, se robot sir, all of production. Furnishing or realizing surplus value is what establishes recording rights. With the development of relative surplus value in the actual specifically capitalist mode of production, whereby the productive powers of social labor are developed, these productive powers and the social interrelations of labor in the direct labor process seem transferred from labor to capital. Capital thus becomes a very mystic being since all of labor's social productive forces appear to be due to capital, rather than labor as such, and seem to issue from the womb of capital itself. 9. What is specifically capitalist here is the role of money and the use of capital as a full body to constitute the recording or inscribing surface. But some kind of full body, that of the earth or the despot, a recording surface, an apparent objective movement, a fetishistic, perverted, bewitched world are characteristic of all types of society as a constant of social reproduction. The body without organs now falls back on, se robot sir, desiring production, attracts it, and appropriates it for its own. The organ machines now cling to the body without organs as though it were a fencer's padded jacket, or as though these organ machines were medals pinned onto the jersey of a wrestler who makes them jingle as he starts toward his opponent. An attraction machine now takes the place, or may take the place, of a repulsion machine, a miraculating machine succeeding the paranoiac machine. But what is meant here by succeeding? The two coexist, rather, and black humor does not attempt to resolve contradictions, but to make it so that there are none, and never were any. The body without organs, the unproductive, the unconsumable, serves as a surface for the recording of the entire process of production of desire, so that desiring machines seem to emanate from it in the apparent objective movement that establishes a relationship between the machines and the body without organs. The organs are regenerated, miraculated on the body of Judge Schreber, who attracts God's rays to himself. Doubtless the former paranoiac machine continues to exist in the form of mocking voices that attempt to demiraculate, demiracular, the organs, the judge's anus in particular. But the essential thing is the establishment of an enchanted recording or inscribing surface that arrogates to itself all the productive forces and all the organs of production, and that acts as a quasi-cause by communicating the apparent movement, the fetish, to them. 
so true is it that the schizo practices political economy, and that all sexuality is a matter of economy. Production is not recorded in the same way it is produced, however. Or rather, it is not reproduced within the apparent objective movement in the same way in which it is produced within the process of constitution. In fact, we have passed imperceptibly into a domain of the production of recording, whose law is not the same as that of the production of production. The law governing the latter was connective synthesis or coupling. But when the productive connections pass from machines to the body without organs, as from labor to capital, it would seem that they then come under another law that expresses a distribution in relation to the non-productive element as a natural or divine presupposition, the disjunctions of capital. Machines attach themselves to the body without organs as so many points of disjunction, between which an entire network of new syntheses is now woven, marking the surface off into coordinates, like a grid. The either, or, or of the schizophrenic takes over from the and then, no matter what two organs are involved, the way in which they are attached to the body without organs must be such that all the disjunctive syntheses between the two amount to the same on the slippery surface. Whereas the either slash or claims to mark decisive choices between immutable terms, the alternative, either this or that, the schizophrenic either, or, or refers to the system of possible permutations between differences that always amount to the same as they shift and slide about. As in the case of Beckett's mouth that speaks and feet that walk, he sometimes halted without saying anything. Either he had finally nothing to say, or while having something to say he finally decided not to say it. Other main examples suggest themselves to the mind. Immediate continuous communication with immediate redeparture. Same thing with delayed redeparture. Delayed continuous communication with immediate redeparture. Same thing with delayed redeparture. Immediate discontinuous communication with immediate redeparture. Same thing with delayed redeparture. Delayed discontinuous communication with immediate redeparture. Same thing with delayed redeparture 10. Thus, the schizophrenic, the possessor of the most touchingly meager capital Malone's belongings, for instance, inscribes on his own body the litany of disjunctions, and creates for himself a world of peris where the most minute of permutations is supposed to be a response to the new situation or a reply to the indiscreet questioner. The disjunctive synthesis of recording therefore comes to overlap the connective synthesis of production. The process as process of production extends into the method as method of inscription. Or rather, if what we term libido is the connective labor of desiring production, it should be said that a part of this energy is transformed into the energy of disjunctive inscription, Newman. A transformation of energy. But why call this new form of energy divine, why label it Newman, in view of all the ambiguities caused by a problem of the unconscious that is only apparently religious? The body without organs is not God, quite the contrary. But the energy that sweeps through it is divine, when it attracts to itself the entire process of production and server as its miraculate, enchanted surface, inscribing it in each and every one of its disjunctions. Hence the strange relationship that Schreber has with God. To anyone who asks, do you believe in God? We should reply in strictly Kantian or Schreberian terms, of course, but only as the master of the disjunctive syllogism, or as its a priori principle, God defined as the omnitudo realitatis, 
from which all secondary realities are derived by a process of division. Dot. Hence the sole thing that is divine is the nature of an energy of disjunctions. Schreber's divine is inseparable from the disjunctions he employs to divide himself up into parts, earlier empires, later empires, later empires of a superior god, and those of an inferior god. Freud stresses the importance of these disjunctive syntheses in Schreber's delirium in particular, but also in delirium as a general phenomenon. A process of decomposition of this kind is very characteristic of paranoia. Paranoia decomposes just as hysteria condenses. Or rather, paranoia resolves once more into their elements the products of the condensations and identifications which are effected in the unconscious eleven. But why does Freud thus add that, on second thought, hysterical neurosis comes first, and that disjunctions appear only as a result of the projection of a more basic, primordial condensed material. Doubtless this is a way of maintaining intact the rights of Oedipus in the god of delirium and the schizoparanoiac recording process. And for that very reason we must pose the most far-reaching question in this regard, does the recording of desire go by way of the various stages in the formation of the Oedipus complex? Disjunctions are the form that the genealogy of desire assumes, but is this genealogy Oedipal, is it recorded in the Oedipal triangulation? Is it not more likely that Oedipus is a requirement or a consequence of social reproduction, insofar as this latter aims at domesticating a genealogical form and content that are in every way intractable? For there is no doubting the fact that the schizo is constantly subjected to interrogation, constantly cross-examined. Precisely because his relationship with nature does not constitute a specific pole, the questions put to him are formulated in terms of the existing social code your name, your father, your mother? In the course of his exercises in desiring production, Beckett's Malloy is cross-examined by a policeman, your name is Malloy, said the sergeant. Yes, I said, now I remember. And your mother? said the sergeant. I didn't follow. Is your mother's name Malloy too? said the sergeant. I thought it over. Your mother, said the sergeant, is your mother's let me think. I cried. At least I imagine that's how it was. Take your time, said the sergeant. Was mother's name Malloy? Very likely. Her name must be Malloy too, I said. They took me away, to the guard room I suppose, and there I was told to sit down. I must have tried to explain twelve. We cannot say that psychoanalysis is very innovative in this respect, it continues to ask its questions and develop its interpretations from the depths of the Oedipal Triangle as its basic perspective, even though today it is acutely aware that this frame of reference is not at all adequate to explain so-called psychotic phenomena. The psychoanalyst says that we must necessarily discover Schreber's daddy beneath his superior god, and doubtless also his elder brother beneath his inferior god. At times the schizophrenic loses his patience and demands to be left alone. Other times he goes along with the whole game and even invents a few tricks of his own, introducing his own reference points in the model put before him and undermining it from within, yes, that's my mother, all right, but my mother's the Virgin Mary, you know. One can easily imagine Schreber answering Freud, yes, I quite agree, naturally the talking birds are young girls, 
and the superior god is my daddy and the inferior god my brother. But little by little he will surreptitiously re-impregnate the series of young girls with all talking birds, his father with the superior god, and his brother with the inferior god, all of them divine forms that become complicated, or rather disimplified, as they break through the simplistic terms and functions of the Oedipal Triangle. As R. Todd put it, I don't believe in father. In mother. Got no papa mummy. Desiring production forms a binary linear system. The full body is introduced as a third term in the series, without destroying, however, the essential binary linear nature of the series, 2, 1, 2, 1. The series is completely refractory to a transcription that would transform and mold it into a specifically ternary and triangular schema such as Oedipus. The full body without organs is produced as anti-production, that is to say it intervenes within the process as such for the sole purpose of rejecting any attempt to impose on it any sort of triangulation implying that it was produced by parents. How could this body have been produced by parents, when by its very nature it is such eloquent witness of its own self-production, of its own engendering of itself? And it is precisely here on this body, right where it is, that the noumen is distributed and disjunctions are established, independent of any sort of projection. Yes, I have been my father and I have been my son. I, Antonin Artaud, am my son, my father, my mother, and myself. 12a. The schizo has his own system of coordinates for situating himself at his disposal, because, first of all, he has at his disposal his very own recording code, which does not coincide with the social code or coincides with it only in order to parody it. The code of delirium or of desire proves to have an extraordinary fluidity. It might be said that the schizophrenic passes from one code to the other, that he deliberately scrambles all the codes, by quickly shifting from one to another, according to the questions asked him, never giving the same explanation from one day to the next, never invoking the same genealogy, never recording the same event in the same way. When he is more or less forced into it and is not in a touchy mood, he may even accept the banal Oedipal code, so long as he can stuff it full of all the disjunctions that this code was designed to eliminate. Adolf Wolfley's drawings reveal the workings of all sorts of clocks, turbines, dynamos, celestial machines, house machines, and so on. And these machines work in a connective fashion, from the perimeter to the center, in successive layers or segments. But the explanations that he provides for them, which he changes as often as the mood strikes him, are based on genealogical series that constitute the recording of each of his drawings. What is even more important, the recording process affects the drawings themselves, showing up in the form of lines standing for catastrophe or collapse that are so many disjunctions surrounded by spirals. Point 13 The schizo maintains a shaky balance for the simple reason that the result is always the same no matter what the disjunctions. Although the organ machines attach themselves to the body without organs, the latter continues nonetheless to be without organs and does not become an organism in the ordinary sense of the word. It remains fluid and slippery. Agents of production likewise alight on Trevor's body and cling to it the sunbeams, for instance, that he attracts, which contain thousands of tiny spermatozoids. Sunbeams, birds, voices, 
nerves enter into changeable and genealogically complex relationships with God and forms of God derived from the Godhead by division. But all this happens and is all recorded on the surface of the body without organs, even the copulations of the agents, even the divisions of God, even the genealogies marking it off into squares like a grid, and their permutations. The surface of this uncreated body swarms with them, as a lion's mane swarms with fleas. 3. The Subject and Enjoyment Conforming to the meaning of the word process, recording falls back on, se robotser, production, but the production of recording itself is produced by the production of production. Similarly, recording is followed by consumption, but the production of consumption is produced in and through the production of recording. This is because something on the order of a subject can be discerned on the recording surface. It is a strange subject, however, with no fixed identity, wandering about over the body without organs, but always remaining peripheral to the desiring machines, being defined by the share of the product it takes for itself, garnering here, there, and everywhere a reward in the form of a becoming or an avatar, being born of the states that it consumes and being reborn with each new state. It's me, and so it's mine. Even suffering, as Marx says, is a form of self-enjoyment. Doubtless all desiring production is, in and of itself, immediately consumption and consummation, and therefore, sensual pleasure. But this is not yet the case for a subject that can situate itself only in terms of the disjunctions of a recording surface, in what is left after each division. Returning yet again to the case of Judge Schreber, we note that he is vividly aware of this fact, the rate of cosmic sexual pleasure remains constant, so that God will find a way of taking his pleasure with Schreber, even if in order to do so Schreber must transform himself into a woman. But Schreber experiences only a residual share of this pleasure, as a recompense for his suffering or as a reward for his becoming woman. On the other hand, God demands a constant state of enjoyment. And it is my duty to provide him with this, in the shape of the greatest possible output of spiritual voluptuousness. And if, in this process, a little sensual pleasure falls to my share, I feel justified in accepting it as some slight compensation for the inordinate measure of suffering and privation that has been mine for so many past years 14. Just as a part of the libido as energy of production was transformed into energy of recording, Newman, a part of this energy of recording is transformed into energy of consummation, voluptus. It is this residual energy that is the motive force behind the third synthesis of the unconscious, the conjunctive synthesis so it's or the production of consumption. We must examine how the synthesis is formed or how the subject is produced. Our point of departure was the opposition between desiring machines and the body without organs. The repulsion of these machines, as found in the paranoiac machine of primary repression, gave way to an attraction in the miraculating machine. But the opposition between attraction and repulsion persists. It would seem that a genuine reconciliation of the two can take place only on the level of a new machine, functioning as the return of the repressed. There are a number of proofs that such a reconciliation does or can exist. With no further details being provided, we are told of Robert G.I.E., the very talented designer of paranoiac electrical machines, since he was unable to free himself of these currents that were tormenting him, he gives every appearance of having finally joined forces with them, 
taking passionate pride in portraying them in their total victory, in their triumph 15. Freud is more specific when he stresses the crucial turning point that occurs in Schreber's illness when Schreber becomes reconciled to becoming woman and embarks upon a process of self-cure that brings him back to the equation nature equals production, the production of a new humanity. As a matter of fact, Schreber finds himself frozen in the pose and trapped in the paraphernalia of a transvestite, at a moment when he is practically cured and has recovered all his faculties, I am sometimes to be found, standing before the mirror or elsewhere, with the upper portion of my body partly bared, and wearing sundry feminine adornments, such as ribbons, trumpery necklaces, and the like. This occurs only, I may add, when I am by myself, and never, at least so far as I am able to avoid it, in the presence of other people 16. Let us borrow the term celibate machine to designate this machine that succeeds the paranoiac machine and the miraculating machine, forming a new alliance between the desiring machines and the body without organs so as to give birth to a new humanity or a glorious organism. This is tantamount to saying that the subject is produced as a mere residuum alongside the desiring machines, or that he confuses himself with this third productive machine and with the residual reconciliation that it brings about, a conjunctive synthesis of consummation in the form of a wonderstruck so that's what it was. Michel Karouks has identified a certain number of fantastic machines celibate machines that he has discovered in works of literature. The examples he points to are of many very different sorts, and at first glance do not seem to belong to a single category, Marcel Duchamp's painting La Marie Mice a new P.A.R.S.E.S. Celibatiers, meme, the bride stripped bare by her bachelors, even, the machine in Kafka's in the penal colony, Raymond Roussel's machines, those of Jerry Surmail, Supermail, certain of Edgar Allan Poe's machines, Villers's Eve Future, The Future Eve, etc. 17 The characteristics that allow us to classify all of them in this one category though their importance varies according to the example considered are as follows, the celibate machine first of all reveals the existence of a much older paranoiac machine, with its tortures, its dark shadows, its ancient law. The celibate machine itself is not a paranoiac machine, however. Everything about it is different, its cogs, its sliding carriage, its shears, needles, magnets, rays. Even when it tortures or kills, it manifests something new and different, a solar force. In the second place, this transfiguration cannot be explained by the miraculating powers the machine possesses due to the inscription hidden inside it, though it in fact contains within itself the most impressive sort of inscriptions, cf the recording supplied by Edison for E Future. A genuine consummation is achieved by the new machine, a pleasure that can rightly be called autoerotic, or rather automatic, the nuptial celebration of a new alliance, a new birth, a radiant ecstasy, as though the eroticism of the machine liberated other unlimited forces. The question becomes, what does the celibate machine produce? What is produced by means of it? The answer would seem to be, intensive quantities. There is a schizophrenic experience of intensive quantities in their pure state, to a point that is almost unbearable a celibate misery and glory experienced to the fullest, like a cry suspended between life and death, an intense feeling of transition, states of pure, naked intensity stripped of all shape and form. These are often described as hallucinations and delirium, 
but the basic phenomenon of hallucination, I see, I hear, and the basic phenomenon of delirium, I think, presuppose and I feel at an even deeper level, which gives hallucinations their object and thought delirium its content and I feel that I am becoming a woman, that I am becoming a god, and so on, which is neither delirious nor hallucinatory, but will project the hallucination or internalize the delirium. Delirium and hallucination are secondary in relation to the really primary emotion, which in the beginning only experiences intensities, becomings, transitions. Where do these pure intensities come from? They come from the two preceding forces, repulsion and attraction, and from the opposition of these two forces. It must not be thought that the intensities themselves are in opposition to one another, arriving at a state of balance around a neutral state. On the contrary, they are all positive in relationship to the zero intensity that designates the full body without organs. And they undergo relative rises or falls depending on the complex relationship between them and the variations in the relative strength of attraction and repulsion as determining factors. In a word, the opposition of the forces of attraction and repulsion produces an open series of intensive elements, all of them positive, that are never an expression of the final equilibrium of a system, but consist, rather, of an unlimited number of stationary, metastable states through which a subject passes. The Kantian theory according to which intensive quantities fill up, to varying degrees, matter that has no empty spaces, is profoundly schizoid. Further, if we are to believe Judge Schreber's doctrine, attraction and repulsion produce intense nervous states that fill up the body without organs to varying degrees states through which Schreber the subject passes, becoming a woman and many other things as well, following an endless circle of eternal return. The breasts on the judge's naked torso are neither delirious nor hallucinatory phenomena, they designate, first of all, a band of intensity, a zone of intensity on his body without organs. The body without organs is an egg, it is crisscrossed with axes and thresholds, with latitudes and longitudes and geodesic lines, traversed by gradients marking the transitions and the becomings, the destinations of the subject developing along these particular vectors. Nothing here is representative, rather, it is all life and lived experience, the actual, lived emotion of having breasts does not resemble breasts, it does not represent them, any more than a predestined zone in the egg resembles the organ that it is going to be stimulated to produce within itself. Nothing but bands of intensity, potentials, thresholds, and gradients. A harrowing, emotionally overwhelming experience, which brings the schizo as close as possible to matter, to a burning, living center of matter. This emotion, situated outside of the particular point where the mind is searching for it, One's entire soul flows into this emotion that makes the mind aware of the terribly disturbing sound of matter, and passes through its white-hot flame 18. How is it possible that the schizo was conceived of as the autistic rag separated from the real and cut off from life that he is so often thought to be? Worse still, how can psychiatric practice have made him this sort of rag, how can it have reduced him to the state of a body without organs that has become a dead thing the schizo who sought to remain at that unbearable point where the mind touches matter and lives its every intensity, consumes it? And shouldn't this question immediately compel us to raise another one, which at first glance seems quite different, how does psychoanalysis go about reducing a person, who this time is not a schizophrenic but a neurotic,
to a pitiful creature who eternally consumes daddy and mommy and nothing else whatsoever? How could the conjunctive synthesis of so that's what it was? And so it's me. Have been reduced to the endless, dreary discovery of Oedipus, so it's my father, my mother? We cannot answer these two questions at this point. We merely see how very little the consumption of pure intensities has to do with family figures, and how very different the connective tissue of the soits is from the Oedipal tissue. How can we sum up this entire vital progression? Let us trace it along a first path, the shortest route the points of disjunction on the body without organs form circles that converge on the desiring machines, then the subject produced as a residuum alongside the machine, as an appendix, or as a spare part adjacent to the machine passes through all the degrees of the circle, and passes from one circle to another. This subject itself is not at the center, which is occupied by the machine, but on the periphery, with no fixed identity, forever disentered, defined by the states through which it passes. Thus the circles traced by Beckett's Unamable, a succession of irregular loops, now sharp and short as in the waltz, now of a parabolic sweep, 19 with Murphy, Watt, Merrier, etc., as states, without the family having anything whatsoever to do with all of this. Or, to follow a path that is more complex, but leads in the end to the same thing, by means of the paranoiac machine and the miraculating machine, the proportions of attraction and repulsion on the body without organs produce, starting from zero, a series of states in the celibate machine, and the subject is born of each state in the series, is continually reborn of the following state that determines him at a given moment, consuming consummating all these states that cause him to be born and reborn, the lived state coming first, in relation to the subject that lives it. This is what Klossowski has admirably demonstrated in his commentary on Nietzsche, the presence of the stimmung as a material emotion, constitutive of the most lofty thought and the most acute perception. The centrifugal forces do not flee the center forever, but approach it once again, only to retreat from it yet again, such is the nature of the violent oscillations that overwhelm an individual so long as he seeks only his own center and is incapable of seeing the circle of which he himself is a part, for if these oscillations overwhelm him, it is because each one of them corresponds to an individual other than the one he believes himself to be, from the point of view of the unlocatable center. As a result, an identity is essentially fortuitous, and a series of individualities must be undergone by each of these oscillations, so that as a consequence the fortuitousness of this or that particular individuality will render all of them necessary. 20. The forces of attraction and repulsion, of soaring ascents and plunging falls, produce a series of intensive states based on the intensity equals zero that designates the body without organs, but what is most unusual is that here again a new afflux is necessary, merely to signify this absence 21. There is no Nietzsche the self, professor of philology, who suddenly loses his mind and supposedly identifies with all sorts of strange people, rather, there is the Nietzschean subject who passes through a series of states, and who identifies these states with the names of history, every name in history is I. 22. The subject spreads itself out along the entire circumference of the circle, the center of which has been abandoned by the ego. At the center is the desiring machine, the celibate machine of the eternal return. 
a residual subject of the machine, Nietzsche's subject garners a euphoric reward, voluptas, from everything that this machine turns out, a product that the reader had thought to be no more than the fragmented over by Nietzsche. Nietzsche believes that he is now pursuing, not the realization of a system, but the application of a program, in the form of residues of the Nietzschean discourse, which have now become the repertory, so to speak, of his histrionicism 23. It is not a matter of identifying with various historical personages, but rather identifying the names of history with zones of intensity on the body without organs, and each time Nietzsche's subject exclaims, there me backslash so it's me backslash no one has ever been as deeply involved in history as the schizo, or dealt with it in this way. He consumes all of universal history in one fell swoop. We began by defining him as homo natura, and lo and behold, he has turned out to be homo historia. This long road that leads from the one to the other stretches from Hold Erlen to Nietzsche, and the pace becomes faster and faster. The euphoria could not be prolonged in Nietzsche for as long a time as the contemplative alienation of Hold Erlen. The vision of the world granted to Nietzsche does not inaugurate a more or less regular succession of landscapes or still lives, extending over a period of 40 years or so, it is, rather, a parody of the process of recollection of an event, a single actor will play the whole of it in pantomime in the course of a single solemn day because the whole of it reaches expression and then disappears once again in the space of just one day even though it may appear to have taken place between December 31 and January 6 in a realm above and beyond the usual rational calendar 24. For a materialist psychiatry. The famous hypothesis put forward by the psychiatrist G. de Clarembault seems well-founded, delirium, which is by nature global and systematic, is a secondary phenomenon, a consequence of partial and local automatistic phenomena. Delirium is in fact characteristic of the recording that is made of the process of production of the desiring machines, and though there are synthesis and disorders, affections, that are peculiar to this recording process, as we see in paranoia and even in the paranoid forms of schizophrenia, it does not constitute an autonomous sphere, for it depends on the functioning and the breakdowns of desiring machines. Nonetheless Clarembault used the term, mental, automatism to designate only athematic phenomena echolalia, the uttering of odd sounds, or sudden irrational outbursts which he attributed to the mechanical effects of infections or intoxications. Moreover, he explained a large part of delirium in turn as an effect of automatism, as for the rest of it, the personal part, in his view it was of the nature of a reaction and had to do with character, the manifestations of which might well precede the automatism, as in the paranoiac character, for instance, point 25 hence Clarembault regarded automatism as merely a neurological mechanism in the most general sense of the word, rather than a process of economic production involving desiring machines. As for history, he was content merely to mention its innate or acquired nature. Clarembault is the Fuggerbach of psychiatry, in the sense in which Marx remarks, whenever Fuggerbach looks at things as a materialist, there is no history in his works, and whenever he takes history into account, he no longer is a materialist. A truly materialist psychiatry can be defined, on the contrary, by the twofold task it sets itself, introducing desire into the mechanism, and introducing production into desire. 
there is no very great difference between false materialism and typical forms of idealism. The theory of schizophrenia is formulated in terms of three concepts that constitute its trinary schema, dissociation, creepellin, autism, bluler, and space-time or being in the world, Benzwanger. The first of these is an explanatory concept that supposedly locates the specific dysfunction or primary deficiency. The second is an ideational concept indicating the specific nature of the effect of the disorder, the delirium itself or the complete withdrawal from the outside world, the detachment from reality, accompanied by a relative or an absolute predominance of the schizophrenic's inner life. The third concept is a descriptive one, discovering or rediscovering the delirious person in his own specific world. What is common to these three concepts is the fact that they all relate the problem of schizophrenia to the ego through the intermediary of the body image the final avatar of the soul, a vague co and joining of the requirements of spiritualism and positivism. The ego, however, is like daddy mommy, the schizo has long since ceased to believe in it. He is somewhere else, beyond or behind or below these problems, rather than immersed in them. And wherever he is, there are problems, insurmountable sufferings, unbearable needs. But why try to bring him back to what he has escaped from, why set him back down amid problems that are no longer problems to him, why mock his truth by believing that we have paid it its due by merely figuratively taking our hats off to it? There are those who will maintain that the schizo is incapable of uttering the word I, and that we must restore his ability to pronounce this hallowed word. All of which the schizo sums up by saying, they're fucking me over again. I won't say slash anymore, I'll never utter the word again, it's just too damn stupid. Every time I hear it, I'll use the third person instead, if I happen to remember to. If it amuses them. And it won't make one bit of difference 26. And if he does chance to utter the word I again, that won't make any difference either. He is too far removed from these problems, too far past them. Even Freud never went beyond this narrow and limited conception of the ego. And what prevented him from doing so was his own tripartite formula the Oedipal, neurotic one, daddy mommy me. We may well ponder the possibility that the analytic imperialism of the Oedipus complex led Freud to rediscover, and to lend all the weight of his authority to, the unfortunate misapplication of the concept of autism to schizophrenia. For we must not delude ourselves, Freud doesn't like schizophrenics. He doesn't like their resistance to being Oedipalized, and tends to treat them more or less as animals. They mistake words for things, he says. They are apathetic, narcissistic, cut off from reality, incapable of achieving transference, they resemble philosophers an undesirable resemblance. The question as to how to deal analytically with the relationship between drives, pools ions, and symptoms, between the symbol and what is symbolized, has arisen again and again. Is this relationship to be considered causal? Or is it a relationship of comprehension? A mode of expression? The question, however, has been posed too theoretically. The fact is, from the moment that we are placed within the framework of Oedipus from the moment that we are measured in terms of Oedipus the cards are stacked against us, and the only real relationship, that of production, has been done away with. The great discovery of psychoanalysis was that of the production of desire, of the productions of the unconscious.
but once Oedipus entered the picture, this discovery was soon buried beneath a new brand of idealism, a classical theatre was substituted for the unconscious as a factory, representation was substituted for the units of production of the unconscious, and an unconscious that was capable of nothing but expressing itself in myth, tragedy, dreams was substituted for the productive unconscious. Every time that the problem of schizophrenia is explained in terms of the ego, all we can do is sample a supposed essence or a presumed specific nature of the schizo, regardless of whether we do so with love and pity or disgustedly spit out the mouthful we have tasted. We have sampled him once as a dissociated ego, another time as an ego cut off from the world, and yet again most temptingly as an ego that had not ceased to be, who was there in the most specific way, but in his very own world, though he might reveal himself to a clever psychiatrist, a sympathetic super-observer in short, a phenomenologist. Let us remember once again one of Marx's caveats, we cannot tell from the mere taste of wheat who grew it, the product gives us no hint as to the system and the relations of production. The product appears to be all the more specific, incredibly specific, and readily describable, the more closely the theoretician relates it to ideal forms of causation, comprehension, or expression, rather than to the real process of production on which it depends. The schizophrenic appears all the more specific and recognizable as a distinct personality if the process is halted, or if it is made an end and a goal in itself, or if it is allowed to go on and on endlessly in a void, so as to provoke that horror of extremity wherein the soul and body ultimately perish. 27, the oddest. Kripelin's celebrated terminal state. But the moment that one describes, on the contrary, the material process of production, the specificity of the product tends to evaporate, while at the same time the possibility of another outcome, another end result of the process appears. Before being a mental state of the schizophrenic who has made himself into an artificial person through autism, schizophrenia is the process of the production of desire and desiring machines. How does one get from one to the other, and is this transition inevitable? This remains the crucial question. Carl Jaspers has given us precious insights, on this point as on so many others, because his idealism was remarkably atypical. Contrasting the concept of process with those of reaction formation or development of the personality, he views process as a rupture or intrusion, having nothing to do with an imaginary relationship with the ego, rather, it is a relationship with the demoniacal in nature. The one thing Jaspers failed to do was to view process as material economic reality, as the process of production wherein nature equals industry, nature equals history. To a certain degree, the traditional logic of desire is all wrong from the very outset, from the very first step that the platonic logic of desire forces us to take, making us choose between production and acquisition. From the moment that we place desire on the side of acquisition, we make desire an idealistic, dialectical, nihilistic, conception, which causes us to look upon it as primarily a lack, a lack of an object, a lack of the real object. It is true that the other side, the production side, has not been entirely ignored. Kant, for instance, must be credited with effecting a critical revolution as regards the theory of desire, by attributing to it the faculty of being, through its representations, the cause of the reality of the objects of these representations. 28. 
but it is not by chance that Kant chooses superstitious beliefs, hallucinations and fantasies as illustrations of this definition of desire, as Kant would have it, we are well aware that the real object can be produced only by an external causality and external mechanisms, nonetheless this knowledge does not prevent us from believing in the intrinsic power of desire to create its own object if only in an unreal, hallucinatory or delirious form or from representing this causality as stemming from within desire itself. The reality of the object, insofar as it is produced by desire, is thus a psychic reality. Hence it can be said that Kant's critical revolution changes nothing essential, this way of conceiving of productivity does not question the validity of the classical conception of desire as a lack, rather, it uses this conception as a support and a buttress, and merely examines its implications more carefully. In point of fact, if desire is the lack of the real object, its very nature as a real entity depends upon an essence of lack that produces the fantasized object. Desire thus conceived of as production, though merely the production of fantasies, has been explained perfectly by psychoanalysis. On the very lowest level of interpretation, this means that the real object that desire lacks is related to an extrinsic natural or social production, whereas desire intrinsically produces an imaginary object that functions as a double of reality, as though there were a dreamed-of object behind every real object, or a mental production behind all real productions. This conception does not necessarily compel psychoanalysis to engage in a study of gadgets and markets, in the form of an utterly dreary and dull psychoanalysis of the object, psychoanalytic studies of packages of noodles, cars, or thingamajigs. But even when the fantasy is interpreted in depth, not simply as an object, but as a specific machine that brings desire itself front and center, this machine is merely theatrical, and the complementarity of what it sets apart still remains, it is now need that is defined in terms of a relative lack and determined by its own object, whereas desire is regarded as what produces the fantasy and produces itself by detaching itself from the object, though at the same time it intensifies the lack by making it absolute, an incurable insufficiency of being, an inability to be that is life itself. Hence the presentation of desire as something supported by needs, while these needs, and their relationship to the object as something that is lacking or missing, continue to be the basis of the productivity of desire, theory of an underlying support. In a word, when the theoretician reduces desiring production to a production of fantasy, he is content to exploit to the fullest the idealist principle that defines desire as a lack, rather than a process of production, of industrial production. Clement Rossett puts it very well, every time the emphasis is put on a lack that desire supposedly suffers from as a way of defining its object, the world acquires as its double some other sort of world, in accordance with the following line of argument, there is an object that desire feels the lack of, hence the world does not contain each and every object that exists, there is at least one object missing, the one that desire feels the lack of, hence there exists some other place that contains the key to desire, missing in this world, dot 29. If desire produces, its product is real. If desire is productive, it can be productive only in the real world and can produce only reality. Desire is the set of passive syntheses that engineer partial objects, flows, and bodies, and that function as units of production. The real is the end product, 
the result of the passive synthesis of desire as auto-production of the unconscious. Desire does not lack anything, it does not lack its object. It is, rather, the subject that is missing in desire, or desire that lacks a fixed subject, there is no fixed subject unless there is repression. Desire and its object are one and the same thing, the machine, as a machine of a machine. Desire is a machine, and the object of desire is another machine connected to it. Hence the product is something removed or deducted from the process of producing, between the act of producing and the product, something becomes detached, thus giving the vagabond, nomad subject a residuum. The objective being of desire is the real in and of itself. There is no particular form of existence that can be labeled psychic reality. As Marx notes, what exists in fact is not lack, but passion, as a natural and sensuous object. Desire is not bolstered by needs, but rather the contrary, needs are derived from desire, they are counter-products within the real that desire produces. Lack is a counter-effect of desire, it is deposited, distributed, vacuolized within a real that is natural and social. Desire always remains in close touch with the conditions of objective existence, it embraces them and follows them, shifts when they shift, and does not outlive them. For that reason it so often becomes the desire to die, whereas need is a measure of the withdrawal of a subject that has lost its desire at the same time that it loses the passive synthesis of these conditions. This is precisely the significance of need as a search in a void, hunting about, trying to capture or become a parasite of passive synthesis in whatever vague world they may happen to exist in. It is no use saying, we are not green plants, we have long since been unable to synthesize chlorophyll, so it's necessary to eat. Desire then becomes this abject fear of lacking something. But it should be noted that this is not a phrase uttered by the poor or the dispossessed. On the contrary, such people know that they are close to grass, almost akin to it, and that desire needs very few things not those leftovers that chance to come their way, but the very things that are continually taken from them and that what is missing is not things a subject feels the lack of somewhere deep down inside himself, but rather the objectivity of man, the objective being of man, for whom to desire is to produce, to produce within the realm of the real. The real is not impossible, on the contrary, within the real everything is possible, everything becomes possible. Desire does not express a molar lack within the subject, rather, the molar organization deprives desire of its objective being. Revolutionaries, artists, and seers are content to be objective, merely objective, they know that desire clasps life in its powerfully productive embrace, and reproduces it in a way that is all the more intense because it has few needs. And never mind those who believe that this is very easy to say, or that it is the sort of idea to be found in books. From the little reading I had done I had observed that the men who were most in life, who were molding life, who were life itself, ate little, slept little, owned little or nothing. They had no illusions about duty, or the perpetuation of their kith and kin, or the preservation of the state. The phantasmal world is the world which has never been fully conquered over. It is the world of the past, never of the future. To move forward clinging to the past is like dragging a ball and chain 30. The true visionary is a Spinoza in the garb of a Neapolitan revolutionary. 
we know very well where lack and its subjective correlative come from. Lack, monk, is created, planned, and organized in and through social production. It is counterproduced as a result of the pressure of anti-production, the latter falls back on, Sarab et sir, the forces of production and appropriates them. It is never primary, production is never organized on the basis of a pre-existing need or lack, monk. It is lack that infiltrates itself, creates empty spaces or vacuoles, and propagates itself in accordance with the organization of an already existing organization of production plus. The deliberate creation of lack as a function of market economy is the art of a dominant class. This involves deliberately organizing wants and needs, monk, amid an abundance of production, making all of desire teeter and fall victim to the great fear of not having one's needs satisfied, and making the object dependent upon a real production that is supposedly exterior to desire, the demands of rationality, while at the same time the production of desire is categorized as fantasy and nothing but fantasy. There is no such thing as the social production of reality on the one hand, and a desiring production that is mere fantasy on the other. The only connections that could be established between these two productions would be secondary ones of introjection and projection, as though all social practices had their precise counterpart in introjected or internal mental practices, or as though mental practices were projected upon social systems, without either of the two sets of practices ever having any real or concrete effect upon the other. As long as we are content to establish a perfect parallel between money, gold, capital, and the capitalist triangle on the one hand, and the libido, the anus, the phallus, and the family triangle on the other, we are engaging in an enjoyable pastime, but the mechanisms of money remain totally unaffected by the anal projections of those who manipulate money. The Marx-Freud parallelism between the two remains utterly sterile and insignificant as long as it is expressed in terms that make them introjections or projections of each other without ceasing to be utterly alien to each other, as in the famous equation money equals shit. The truth of the matter is that social production is purely and simply desiring production itself under determinate conditions. We maintain that the social field is immediately invested by desire, that it is the historically determined product of desire, and that libido has no need of any mediation or sublimation, any psychic operation, any transformation, in order to invade and invest the productive forces and the relations of production. There is only desire and the social, and nothing else. Even the most repressive and the most deadly forms of social reproduction are produced by desire within the organization that is the consequence of such production under various conditions that we must analyze. That is why the fundamental problem of political philosophy is still precisely the one that Spinoza saw so clearly, and that Wilhelm Reich rediscovered, why do men fight for their servitude as stubbornly as though it were their salvation? How can people possibly reach the point of shouting, more taxes? Less bread? As Reich remarks, the astonishing thing is not that some people steal or that others occasionally go out on strike, but rather that all those who are starving do not steal as a regular practice, and all those who are exploited are not continually out on strike, after centuries of exploitation, why do people still tolerate being humiliated and enslaved, to such a point, indeed? that they actually want humiliation and slavery not only for others but for themselves. 
Reich is at his profoundest as a thinker when he refuses to accept ignorance or illusion on the part of the masses as an explanation of fascism, and demands an explanation that will take their desires into account, an explanation formulated in terms of desire, no, the masses were not innocent dupes, at a certain point, under a certain set of conditions, they wanted fascism, and it is this perversion of the desire of the masses that needs to be accounted for.31. Yet Reich himself never manages to provide a satisfactory explanation of this phenomenon, because at a certain point he reintroduces precisely the line of argument that he was in the process of demolishing, by creating a distinction between rationality as it is or ought to be in the process of social production, and the irrational element in desire, and by regarding only this latter as a suitable subject for psychoanalytic investigation. Hence the sole task he assigns psychoanalysis is the explanation of the negative, the subjective, the inhibited within the social field. He therefore necessarily returns to a dualism between the real object rationally produced on the one hand, and irrational, fantasizing production on the other. He gives up trying to discover the common denominator or the coextension of the social field and desire. In order to establish the basis for a genuinely materialistic psychiatry, there was a category that Reich was sorely in need of, that of desiring production, which would apply to the real in both its so-called rational and irrational forms. The fact there is massive social repression that has an enormous effect on desiring production in no way vitiates our principle, desire produces reality, or stated another way, desiring production is one and the same thing as social production. It is not possible to attribute a special form of existence to desire, a mental or psychic reality that is presumably different from the material reality of social production. Desiring machines are not fantasy machines or dream machines, which supposedly can be distinguished from technical and social machines. Rather, fantasies are secondary expressions, deriving from the identical nature of the two sorts of machines in any given set of circumstances. Thus fantasy is never individual, it is group fantasy as Institutional Analysis Plus has successfully demonstrated. And if there is such a thing as two sorts of group fantasy, it is because two different readings of this identity are possible, depending upon whether the desiring machines are regarded from the point of view of the great gregarious masses that they form, or whether social machines are considered from the point of view of the elementary forces of desire that serve as a basis for them. Hence in group fantasy the libido may invest all of an existing social field, including the latter's most repressive forms, or on the contrary, it may launch a counter-investment whereby revolutionary desire is plugged into the existing social field as a source of energy. The great socialist utopias of the 19th century function, for example, not as ideal models but as group fantasies that is, as agents of the real productivity of desire, making it possible to disinvest the current social field, to deinstitutionalize it, to further the revolutionary institution of desire itself. But there is never any difference in nature between the desiring machines and the technical social machines. There is a certain distinction between them, but it is merely a distinction of regime, depending on their relationships of size. Except for this difference in regime, they are the same machines, as group fantasies clearly prove. When in the course of our discussion above, we laid down the broad outlines of a parallelism between social production and desiring production, 
in order to show that in both cases there is a strong tendency on the part of the forces of anti-production to operate retroactively on, se rabatrasur, productive forms and appropriate them, this parallelism was in no way meant as an exhaustive description of the relationship between the two systems of production. It merely enables us to point to certain phenomena having to do with the difference in regime between them. In the first place, technical machines obviously work only if they are not out of order, they ordinarily stop working not because they break down but because they wear out. Marx makes use of this simple principle to show that the regime of technical machines is characterized by a strict distinction between the means of production and the product, thanks to this distinction, the machine transmits value to the product, but only the value that the machine itself loses as it wears out. Desiring machines, on the contrary, continually break down as they run, and in fact run only when they are not functioning properly, the product is always an offshoot of production, implanting itself upon it like a graft, and at the same time the parts of the machine are the fuel that makes it run. 